DiscerningHearts.com and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology presents The Gospel of Divine Mercy, recorded at the 2016 Fullness of Truth Conference located at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Houston, Texas. President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, Dr. Scott Hahn, and St. Paul Center Fellows, Dr. John Bergsman and Dr. Michael Barber, in a series of six conference talks, explored various questions surrounding the mystery of mercy. What is mercy? Is it an emotion, an action, an affront to justice, or an expression of justice? Moreover, what does it look like in action? Where do we find it described in sacred scripture? What do we need to do to receive it? And how do we share God's mercy as we go about our lives in the world today? During the course of the six conference talks, they explore these questions and more, attempting to plumb the depths of the all-important manifestation of God's healing, forgiving, transforming, faithful love with the help of sacred scripture. We now begin conference talk two, featuring Dr. John Berksman, who speaks on mercy and psalms. We're going to discuss what a covenant is. Um, We have a basic idea. As Dr. Hahn said, it's the exchange of persons rather than goods, but there's some more things we can say about that. We're going to find out what book of the Bible speaks the most of God's mercy and why it makes sense that we sing a psalm at every Mass. We're going to talk about how to distinguish between true and false mercy And most of all, we're going to learn a bunch of cool Hebrew words to impress your friends. So you can go home and say, I went to a Fullness of Truth conference. We learned about Rachamim. That's right. I'll bet you don't know what Rachamim means. But we're going to learn. We're going to learn Rachamim and Hanan and some some other great things. So we're going to begin by discussing... What does mercy mean? What does mercy mean? Uh, Now, I make my living by teaching Bible to 18 to 22-year-olds up at uh, Franciscan University in Ohio. And um, I usually teach Old Testament in the fall and New Testament in the spring. And so we, we talk about God's mercy in Scripture quite intensely in my course, especially at... Uh, a certain time in the course sequence. Um, And it might surprise you, but it's really not when we're dealing with the Psalms in the fall as we're going through the Old Testament. And it's not when we're going through the Gospel of Luke in the spring in the New Testament. And it's not in the book of Philippians. It's not when we're in Genesis. But the time when we talk about God's mercy the most is at the final exam. And strangely, I don't have to do any teaching at that point because the students are constantly reminding me about God's mercy. And um, I, I find that almost every Franciscan student knows that God's primary attribute is his mercy. And about half of them write that on the blue book in case I had forgotten you know, despite my theological training, they want to make sure that I know that. And, um, and so the question is, what does mercy mean? Does it mean forgiveness, not punishing when it's deserved, lowering standards, accepting shoddy work, blowing things off as inconsequential, pity, leniency? I think most Franciscan students mean, think it means getting a grade that you did not work for. <laughs> I'm not sure. What is mercy? We, we use it so, so casually, but um, seriously, uh, mercy means something quite different in the Old Testament than any of these things that uh, we have on the screen. Um, there are three words that are close to our, Hebrew, our English concept of mercy that are used in the Old Testament. One is rachamim, which is a noun, Another is chanan, which is a verb. And a third is also a noun, chesed. And Dr. Hahn mentioned chesed uh, already. And so let's just go into these three words and explore how they're used in the Bible. 
First of all, Rachamim. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Rachamim. Okay. And that H is a hard H that you got to kind of scrape your throat like you're German or something. So Rachamim. Okay. Yeah, there we go. I, I hear some good pronunciation out there. <laughs> yeah. So Rachamim is actually the plural of Racham, which is womb. It's best translated compassion. That's the closest English word to this. And it, it denotes the love between fa- blood family members, the sympathy between those who came forth from the same racham, the same womb, or the deep love of a mother for a child because a child came out of her racham. So we see this beautiful word used many times in the Psalms and elsewhere, but let's, let's uh, read this verse from Psalm 79, verse 8 together. Let's read it together. Ready? Do not remember against us the iniquities of our forefathers. Let thy compassions come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. See Israel calling out and calling on God to have compassion, and it's, it's a maternal quality, not that Israel would ever call God by a female pronoun or, or call God mother, but nonetheless there are these maternal qualities in God that um, he has compassion uh, on us. Um, he is a loving father. Now, another word used in the Old Testament uh, for the mercy of God is Hanan. Ready? Say that with me now. Hanan. And this is the verbal form of the noun Hain, which means grace or favor. If you, uh, if you Hanan someone, you show grace or favor toward them. Sometimes it's translated be merciful or show mercy. Let's, let's read Psalm 6, verse 2 together. Ready? Just the English. You can leave out the Hebrew. Okay, ready? Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. And this is the word that gives us the names Hannah, okay? Uh, which is, of course, a biblical name. We remember that the prophet Samuel, his mother, was Hannah. And you might remember that in the the book 1 Samuel, um, we have the account of the birth of the prophet Samuel as a a child, obviously. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, his mother Hannah uh, prays a song to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord for the birth of the Son. And we call it Hannah's Song there in 1 Samuel 2. And when you read it as a Catholic, it sounds very familiar because it sounds a lot like what? The Magnificat, absolutely, which comes to us in uh, Luke chapter 1. So observe the parallel. Back in 1 Samuel 2, you have... This woman whose name means grace, you know, just like Grace Kelly or whatever, we, we use the word grace as a woman's name, right? Hannah, grace, she is giving us a song to God about the miraculous birth of her son who's a prophet. And then in Luke 1, we have a woman who is full of grace, and she likewise prays a beautiful song to the Lord when she gives birth to a son or when she's pregnant with a son who will be a great prophet, priest, and king, etc. So beautiful parallel there, um, all about the grace of God, one who is named grace and one who is full of grace. So we get the name Hannah from that. My own name, John, um, comes from the Hebrew Yohanan. Uh, Hanan is grace or to be gracious, and Yo is the first syllable of the divine name, the Lord, Y-H-W-H. And um, so that's, that's Hanan, which is still very much with us through um, sacred names. And then the third word for mercy, and the one that we're going to focus the most on this evening, is Chesed, which Dr. Han mentioned already. This is also a hard H word, so it's Chesed. Say it with me. Ready? Chesed, very good. You're all such wonderful Hebrew scholars down here in Houston. By the way, it's Houston. (laughs) That's the Hebrew way to say it. (laughs) Um, But Chesed is, as Dr. Han mentioned, it's this bond of loyalty and affection that should exist between covenant partners, or we could just 
just translated as covenant fidelity. Um, it's been translated in Greek as eleos and into Latin as misericordia, from which we get mercy. Mercy is an English contraction from misericordia. Now, the Greek form, eleos, that should look familiar to you, right? Because we have words like this in mass, yeah? Kyrie eleison, right? It's from eleos. It's a verb from from that noun, eleos. Eleison is the uh, verbal form. So um, uh, this this word chesed uh, is sometimes translated steadfast love in uh, more modern translations, but it's one of the most important terms in the Bible, one of the most theologically significant uh, this is the famous passage where God names himself uh, in response to Moses. Moses wanted to behold God's face, and God said, I can't show you my face, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by, and I will proclaim my name, and, uh, and that you will see my back. And uh, when I used to read this in, as a kid, I thought, okay, God's going to pass by and he's going to proclaim his name. So that's going to go like this. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Okay? That's how he's going to proclaim his name. Like, that's, you know, what else are you going to say? That's his name is the Lord. So he's going to say the Lord about, you know, 15 times. You know, um, yeah. But that's not, that's not what happened. Okay, that's not what happens. The Lord goes by and, and we get this. We get this theological treatise up here. Uh, the Lord proclaims this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, that's Rachamim, and gracious, Chanun, slow to anger, and abundant in mercy, chesed, and truth, keeping chesed, or mercy, for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And so I always wonder growing up, you know, the Lord said he was going to proclaim his name, but then we get this whole thing, okay? So what's going on? But what, what you have to understand, it took me a long time to realize this, and it, it wasn't until I was about halfway through my doctorate in Scripture, suddenly it dawned on me, for the Hebrews, the name was your essence, okay? So the name was everything that you were, okay? The, the Greeks would call it your ontology, okay, or, some, or your, your nature or sub, substance or something like that. But the Hebrews didn't have that philosophical language. For them, what you were was your name. So when God says, I'm going to go by and proclaim my name, it means I'm going to go by and I'm going to reveal who I am. I'm going to reveal my nature, and that's why you get this long statement from the Lord, because this is the nature of God. And you can see at the heart of it is all these synonyms for mercy. And this is one of the reasons why we say the, uh, the greatest attribute of God is his mercy. Well, let's talk some more about um, chesed and mercy. And uh, what, one of the important things we want to grasp tonight is that chesed is a covenantal concept, as uh, St. John Paul II taught us. When in the Old Testament the word chesed is used of the Lord, this always occurs in connection with the covenant that God established with Israel. And in that passage that we just read, that was in the context of God restoring the covenant to Israel in response to Moses' intercessions after Israel had been unfaithful to the covenant. The basic principle of the Old Testament is we are unfaithful to the covenant, but God is always faithful to it. While we don't always show chesed to God, God always shows chesed to us. But if we say that mercy is covenantal, we need to know what a covenant is. And we have a good idea about that, and Dr. Hahn talked to us about covenant uh, not long ago. But here's another way of defining covenant. We can call it the extension of kinship by oath. Okay, that's the shortest, most succinct definition I've ever been able to find. The extension of kinship by oath, which means it's a way of swearing someone into your family. 
Why does God deal with us in, with, in covenants? It's because by nature, we're not his children. Okay, by nature, we're creatures. Okay, just like the other animals and the other objects of, okay, we're made out of the dust of the ground, formed, etc. But God wants us to be more than creatures. He wants to usher us into his family, and God himself is a family. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the love that they exchange is the Spirit. So God is a circle of family love. Okay? Now that's, that's unique to the Christian faith, and particularly to the Catholic faith. All right? Other religions do not have this notion of God being a circle of familial love. In Judaism, God is just monopersonal. He's not a circle of love. He's just himself. Okay? Uh, likewise in, in Islam. You know, you can get Dr. Han's uh, tape on Allah or Abba and discusses the, uh, the vision of God in Islam. But again, it's, God is not a circle of love in Islam. And in Buddhism, you don't even have to be theistic. Okay? Buddha himself did not teach whether there was a God or not. It just didn't matter for his system because the point of Buddhism is not to go into the loving arms of a father God for eternity, but the point of Buddhism is to escape the cycles of reincarnation. Right? So this is unique, folks. I mean, this is very special. Our understanding of God is different than in other religions. And uh, Christ has revealed to us a way to enter into greater intimacy with God than is available in any other religion that might be out there. Well, getting back to this, God wants to usher us into his family, and so he swears to us, or he makes covenants with us. And because covenant uh, brought a person into the family, the rituals of covenant often involve blood and meals. And this explains a lot about different events in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Genesis 31, um, Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, have a falling out. Dr. Hahn mentioned, you know, Jacob and Laban, and Jacob married, you know, Leah, which means cow, and Rachel, which means ewe lamb, and so on. And, and, uh, but then the rest of the story is, at a certain point, Rachel and Leah uh, got kind of fed up with their conniving father, and Jacob got fed up with his conniving father-in-law. And so Jacob, Rachel, and Leah all agreed to abscond and to get out of Dodge, all right, with their kids and with their sheep. And um, so they, they did that, but then Laban found out about it, got upset, chased after them. Well, came to a big confrontation when Laban finally caught up with Jacob, um, but the Lord intervened and sent an angel to tell Laban to stand down and not do anything violent. And so he didn't. But then, in order to cement that peaceful relationship that was the result of that angel's intercession, they decided to renew a covenant with one another. So what do they do? They offered sacrifices, and then they ate a meal together. And why eat a meal together? Because they're family, and families eat together. So they renewed that family commitment between Jacob and Laban. Again, at the foot of, at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8, we see Moses making the Sinai covenant between God and Israel. And Moses first offers sacrifices, and those sacrifices produce blood. Then Moses dips a sprinkler into the blood, and he sprinkles some of the blood on the altar, and that represents God. So God is taking the blood. And then he takes the rest of the blood, and he sprinkles it on the people. Okay? And that represents the people accepting the blood. So now what do we have? God and the people are the same blood. And don't we say, you know, he's blood to me, meaning, you know, he's a cousin or he's a brother or something like that. Okay, so now Israel and God are blood to each other. They're family. What happens after that in Exodus 24, 1 through 8? Well, after the blood ceremony, uh, Moses and the leaders of the people go up on the mountain and they have a meal with God. They eat and drink in God's presence on Sinai. Why did they do that? Because they're family now and families eat together. Or at least they should eat together before television, soccer, baseball, and football came along. And uh, now everybody just grabs fast food. But 
at a certain time, we used to eat with each other. And um, Matthew 26, that's the institution of the Eucharist. Okay? Think of this. Once we understand how covenant works, the, insti- the, the Eucharist makes so much sense. You know, our, our Lord takes this cup and changes the wine into his blood and then gives it to the apostles, and they drink his blood. I mean, what more profound way to make somebody into your kin than to share your blood with them so that the apostles can now say, we have the blood of Jesus in us, okay? We are the family of Jesus, and he's God, so we're the family of God. So there's a blood ritual in the, in the Eucharist, and of course it's a meal. They share a meal with Jesus because they are family. They are the divine family, and this is renewed every time we come to Mass. We have the blood and we have the meal um, in Mass, and that cements our family relationship with God. So that's what covenant is all about. And, and by the way, I'll say one thing. You might say, well, you said that covenant was swearing an oath. Okay. Well, where is the oath swearing, for example, in some of these ceremonies? And uh, where, where's the oath swearing in the Eucharist? Well, the precious blood is the oath sign, one of the oath signs in the Eucharist. Because uh, when, we, when we take the blood of Christ, we're not only saying, I am now kin to Jesus. I'm now part of Jesus' family. Jesus is God and part of the divine family. But we're also saying when we take that blood, if I don't keep my commitments to Christ, okay, may my blood be shed, okay, like this shed blood that I'm receiving, okay? So when you call down a curse on yourself, that is an oath. That's the structure of an oath. An oath is a self-curse. You say, you know, Uh, may the Lord judge me if I don't do what I'm promising to do, okay? So the Eucharist is a very solemn sign, and that's why the church says if you're not in a state of grace, don't come forward and take, because you're calling judgment upon yourself. And and this is biblical. This is what St. Paul says. St. Paul says if you eat uh, unworthily, then you are... Um, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And he warns the Corinthians that that's why some persons in the Corinthian congregation had fallen asleep, he says. And that's a euphemism or a nice way of saying they had died. Okay? So the Eucharist is a very serious thing. And, and so that's a, it's an oath sign as well. It's an oath of our faithfulness to God when we receive it. And in fact, when we say amen, the body of Christ, then we say amen. Amen was oath language in in Hebrew, that you were affirming that something was true and you were committing yourself to it. Well, let's talk more about hesed. Hesed is the the personal commitment. It's the substance of the covenant. After you enter the covenant, you're now supposed to show hesed to the person that you entered into covenant with. So let's look at some examples from the Bible where covenant, which is the Hebrew word barith, let's say barith together, ready? Barith, excellent. One more time, ready? Barith, okay. You ever heard of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League? It's called Banai Barith, okay. That means sons of the covenant, okay. Sons of is Banai and Barith is covenant. So, um, so let's look at some examples where covenant and mercy are right together. So Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. Barith and Chesed, with those who love, love him. So there's such close concepts, they're used side by side. Again, Psalm 89, verse 28 says, My mercy, or Chesed, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Two ways of saying the same thing. Again, Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will make with you an everlasting Barith covenant. My mercies for David... You know, what is the covenant? It's the mercies for David. So this is the Davidic covenant being promised in Isaiah 55. So we see that these terms are very, uh, very much related uh, in Scripture. Now, the most intense place where chesed or mercy comes into play in the Old Testament is really in the Psalms. Uh, Hesed occurs 250 times in the whole Old Testament, but in the Psalms, 130 times almost uh, once in every psalm. Uh, It is the fourth most common noun in the book of Psalms after God or the Lord, 
soul, and land. Only those three uh, or four terms, if you separate God and Lord from each other, uh, come before um, the word chesed. So it is a very, very important, very common, frequent word in the Psalter. So a lot of Psalms have a refrain, for his mercy endures forever. Um, the full refrain being, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Psalm 136 is a great example of this. Let's read a few lines of this um, psalm together. And what I'd like you to do is do the response as good Catholics. And it's in bold up on the screen there. So I'll do the, the leader's part. Oh, give thanks to, to the Lord, for he is good. O oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who divided the Red Sea into parts. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him which led his people through the wilderness. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven. Beautiful. So this is an example, Psalm 136, of a Thanksgiving psalm. Thanksgiving psalms are a certain classification of psalms uh, that we recognize. And these are psalms that were written to accompany the Thanksgiving sacrifice, which many of you uh, may know about. Dr. Hahn and Dr. Barber uh, teach about this, uh, and I do myself in uh, various books and talks. But the, the Thanksgiving sacrifice in Hebrew was the Zebach Todah. That's a fun thing to say. I just can't resist letting you all say it with me. So let's say it together. Again, you've got to scrape that CH on the end of Zebach there. So ready? Zebach Todah. Wow. I think you guys have some Jewish blood in you. Um, <laughs> Well, if you went to Mass today, you do. <laughs> so these, uh, the Zebach Todah, the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, was, was a, um, a real animal sacrifice that was offered for uh, thanks. Now, when you read in uh, Leviticus, we mentioned Leviticus in Dr. Hahn's talk, you know, the the book where you bog down when you're trying to read through the Bible. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are all kind of like the, the canon law of Israel about how to perform the sacrifices. And we know that there are many different kinds of sacrifices described in those first seven chapters of Leviticus. There's the burnt offering, there's the cereal offering, there's the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering. So there's many different kinds of sacrifices. And one of those was the sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is mentioned in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 14. And this sacrifice was different from all the others. And here are some points in which it was different. First of all, it was not offered for atonement or for reparation. The burnt offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering were but not the thanksgiving offering. It did not atone or make reparation. Instead, it was offered in thanks for a specific act of deliverance, like God saved you from illness, from your enemies, from the IRS, and you entered the temple and gave thanks um, for, uh, for that act of salvation. Uh, furthermore, the Todah was uh, eaten by the worshipers, the animal that was offered. Only part was given to the priest, but the rest was cooked on the altar and then eaten by those who came to worship. Now, you didn't eat anything from a burnt offering. You, had, you, you smoked that whole cow up, okay? You took your cattle and threw them on the altar. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much, a, there's probably some people here who know how, a, how much a head of cattle costs. What, the, what does it cost these days for a good head of cattle? 10000 10, Or no? 1000 Something like that. Okay. It's, it's valuable, though. There's a lot of beef, right? 
on, on a bull or a steer. And so you put that all on the altar, and all that value, okay, all that money that you had in raising that animal, that all gets smoked, okay? The whole thing gets burned up to God, so it's a complete loss. So you're sitting there drooling, <laughs> thinking of the, the steaks, the cuts, the, the bratwurst, you know, that you could have could have made with that, and it's just going up in smoke, like, oh, God. So the burnt offering was a severe mortification, you know, where all that value that you had in that animal and all the food that you could have gotten, it was all offered up to God. So it's a very solemn act of, of, um, of penitence. But that wasn't the case with the Todah. With the Todah, you gave the priest a cut of the meat, and then the rest you ate with your family. So it was like a cookout at the temple or barbecue at the temple. Okay, It was a celebratory occasion. And, and you brought many fine breads with it. Leviticus 7, uh, 11 through 14 specifies you had to, you, you brought many be- breads that were baked with oil. Okay, And oil is one of the three major food groups along with sugar and salt. And, um, and sugar, salt, and oil are what make things taste good. And so you bring these breads with, with, uh, with a lot of oil. And uh, so they're tasty breads. would be the equivalent today of croissants and um, donuts and Timbits and uh, you know, hamburger buns and, and, uh, and hot dog buns and stuff like that. And you just bring all these these pastries and stuff, and you eat it with the meat in your barbecue at the temple, and uh, it was a great occasion. And get this, everything had to be eaten before dawn by canon law. (laughs) So this was a liturgically enforced feast, okay? No leftovers, no Tupperware, okay? When the sun came up, everything had to be gone or you were in trouble. So that forced you to have a feast in the temple. So again, this is a, a celebration. You go up there, you'd sacrifice the animal. A whole goat or a whole bull is far too much for one person to eat. So you'd bring your family and you'd bring your friends to make sure you could eat it all before dawn. And sometimes even your friends and family weren't enough. And then you would have to invite poor people you know, to come. You know, and beggars would hang around the temple uh, waiting for someone to offer the todah and and when they offered it, then they were often invited to come and help consume the, uh, the feast. So it was, it was good for you. It was, it was enjoyable for you, enjoyable for your family, enjoyable for your friends. And it was even a blessing to the poor. Okay? And you see that reflected in the Psalms that talk about these celebrations. So that was the Todah. So the Todah, or Thanksgiving sacrifice, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And, um, and offering it... Let's see here. Okay. Uh, there we go. Okay. So offering it uh, was often involved in, or I should say, the, uh, the circumstances that would lead you to offer the Todah were often like this. Um, you would begin in a situation of distress, so your enemies were chasing you, uh, you were sick with some disease, you were being audited, <laughs> and you would cry out to God in distress. You cry out to God and you would vow to God that, Lord, if you save me, I will go up to the temple and offer the thanksgiving sacrifice to you. And then God would act to save you. And in the Psalms, oftentimes the Psalms don't clearly describe what God exactly did for the psalmist to save him. Um, but you'll notice many psalms have a transition where they go from crying out and vowing to God <coughs> to a situation of thanksgiving. <coughs> and after God acts to save you, then you go up to the temple and you pay the vow. And that involves offering the Todah sacrifice. And then you feast. You have this barbecue or cookout, and everybody lines up with their little three-quadrant plate, and you go through and slap a piece of goat on there, and a little potato salad, and uh, coleslaw, 
and everybody sits around with their spork, you know, and <laughs> eats that goat. And, um, and while that feasting is going on, um, and you invite some poor people over to help finish it all off, while that feasting is going on, you stand up and you give public testimony about how, you know, you were diseased on your bed, and God raised you up, how you're being chased by the Philistines, and you made it over a hill, and God sent his angel, and the Philistines got distracted, and uh, IRS Jerusalem was going over your books, and they made a math error and didn't realize how much you had earned in the previous year. So <clears throat> you give praise to God for uh, his deliverance uh, for you, and uh, different um, let's see here. Okay, we skipped, uh, we skipped a slide, but that's all right. So that's what we call the Toda cycle. What we just went over was the, uh, the Toda uh, cycle. And, um, and people would go through this and go up and give praise uh, to God. And uh, I would just want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the Passover and the Toda. Because the, uh, the Passover, as we know, was a a sheep or a goat that was offered um, at the Passover season as part of the ceremony recalling to mind God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And uh, in later Jewish tradition, they reflected on these different categories of sacrifices that um, Moses had laid out in Leviticus 1 through 7. And they said, now, what category does the Passover fit into? Well, it certainly can't be a burnt offering because we eat most of the lamb of the Passover and you don't eat anything from a burnt offering. And it can't be a sin or a guilt offering because only the priests eat those and we eat the lamb. And it can't be a cereal offering because it has an animal component to it and it's not a peace offering because it doesn't follow the instructions. Finally, they hit on it. You know what? The Passover is a todah, okay? Because you eat bread with the Passover, and the todah is the only sacrifice that you do that. And um, the, the Passover is offered in thanksgiving, not in reparation, but in thanksgiving because God delivered us out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea, etc. So the Passover was considered a todah. And at the Passover, they sang a whole set of Todah psalms, or Thanksgiving psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. They were considered a a single hymn called the Hallel, and this is still done uh, to this day in Judaism. The Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, are sung or chanted at uh, the Passover Seder. Now, Jesus would have sung this. He would have sung the Hallel. In fact, in Matthew 26, 30, where it says... Uh, and then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. That hymn that they sing uh, after the Eucharist has been instituted, that would have been the Hallel. They would have sung Psalms 113 through 118. Now, it's very striking to go and read Psalms 113 through 118 um, as in order and think about them as coming off the lips of Jesus on Holy Thursday night, right before he goes out to, uh, to experience his passion. And so let's read some of, let's read some of the, um, uh, some of these psalms from the Hallel. And just as I read through, for example, here, Psalm 116, just keep in mind that our Lord would have spoken or chanted these words himself before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. The snares of death encompassed me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save my life. And you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the Torah. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, praise the Lord. 
That's Psalm 116, which we use on Holy Thursday uh, uh, liturgy. And Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel Psalms, is particularly poignant. And this we read during the Easter octave, um, beginning with the Easter vigil itself. And I would like to read this with you. Again, you can uh, read the, um, the bolded responses here. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, Let those who fear the Lord say, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sorely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I will give thanks, Todah, to thee. You are my God, I will extol thee. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. How poignant. As our Lord was preparing to enter into his passion, those words of the Hallel of the Jewish Passover reminded him and reminded all those present that God is a God of resurrection who does not leave his Holy One to see decay, as Psalm 16 says, but raises up his saints. And that's the theme of the Psalms. It's all about hesed and thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His hesed, his mercy, endures forever. There we see the connection between the thanksgiving offering and God's mercy. We offer the thanksgiving offering because God has been merciful. He has been faithful to his covenant. Many of the Psalms, perhaps most of the Psalms, were written for some part of the Todah cycle. Those psalms that we call laments were probably written for that first part where you're in distress. Those psalms that we call thanksgivings or praises were probably written for the second part. And many psalms, like Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus invokes from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, of course, is the first line of Psalm 22. A little note on that, by the way. When people read, you know, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people think that God the Father has completely abandoned Jesus on the cross, and that's very troubling, right? And then you think, well, is God going to abandon me when I'm in my despair and so on? But what, what folks don't realize is that's the first line from Psalm 22. And back in the day, they didn't number the Psalms. They were just known by their first line. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, all the books of the Bible are just known by the first words, right? So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is invoking all of Psalm 22. Okay? When he says that, it's like if I, if I went, oh, say can you. <laughs> yeah, okay. You can't resist feeling it, right? And now the Star Spangled Banner starts to run in your head. And the Jews had the Psalms memorized. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, it starts the psalm running in their head. Now, think about this. Read Psalm 22. How does it end? Maybe you don't recall. I'll tell you. It ends in victory. It ends in triumph. It ends in salvation. Now, one more question. Do you think Jesus knew how Psalm 22 ended? <laughs> okay. I rest my case. All right. So, Psalm, like, Psalm 22 is the whole Todah cycle from distress to thanksgiving, and many other psalms are as well. Psalm 118, Psalm 116. 
So the Psalms basically give thanks to God for his mercy, and by mercy we mean covenant faithfulness. We mean chesed. And the Passover was a todah. And Psalms 113 through 118 are and were recited at the Passover. And all of a sudden, it all comes together, and this helps us to understand our sacrifice, which we call the Eucharist, which, as you all know, means thanksgiving. From the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. Okay? So the Eucharist is the new Passover. The Passover was a todah, or thanksgiving sacrifice, and so the Eucharist is that for sure, too. It's the new todah. And in the Eucharist, we are perpetually giving thanks for God's mercy in Jesus. Not thanks that we came through the Red Sea when it was parted, although that's a great event as well, but now through a greater parting, a parting of heaven and earth that opens up a way for us to reach God through Christ, through the outpouring of his life. So this is the Eucharist, this thanks for our deliverance through Christ, which who freed us from slavery, not in Egypt, but slavery to sin, and brought us not into Canaan, but into the glorious freedom of the children of God, and ultimately heaven. Now, as many of you know, uh, among the rabbis, they pondered what sacrifices from Leviticus would remain after the Messiah came. And as they thought about it, they said, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll put an end to sin. So in the age to come, after the arrival of the Messiah, the burnt offering won't be necessary anymore because that's for atonement, and the sin and the guilt offerings won't be necessary anymore because the Messiah's put an end to all that. And the rest of these sacrifices, too, are pretty much going to be unnecessary. (coughs) But you know what? In the age to come, the one sacrifice that will always remain will be the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because even after the Messiah has come, we will still have reason to thank God forever because of the salvation that he brought through the Messiah. Well, what do you know? (laughs) They were right. The Messiah has come, and the one sacrifice that remains now is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, (laughs) what is mercy? Mercy is God's faithfulness to his covenant. In the Old Testament, they thanked God for his mercy, which was primarily shown by being faithful to his covenant to Abraham, which promised that Abraham's descendants would inherit the land, the promised land. And God showed that most dramatically when he brought the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt in the Exodus and crossed the Red Sea. For us, we celebrate God's mercy, his covenant faithfulness, by the Eucharist, which gives thanks to God for what he has done for us in Christ. But since mercy is faithfulness to the covenant, it follows that in this year of mercy, we should all be all about strengthening covenant bonds, not weakening them. Okay? Our society often thinks that mercy means to be freed from your obligations so that you can leave and go do something else. But that's not what mercy is in the Bible. Mercy is the restoring of familial relationship, um, bringing persons back into covenant and back into family. And a great example of that is perhaps the most well-known parable of mercy, which is the prodigal son. So let's think about the prodigal son for a moment. In that parable, we have this younger son who tells his father that he wants his portion of the estate so that he can go off and spend it. Now, that was very insulting to a father back in the day because usually this estate was not distributed until the father was dead. So the, the younger son is saying, basically, Dad, you're like dead to me, Okay. Um, you know, I don't care about you anymore. So the, um, the father, though, complies with this, and he liquidates part of the estate, gives the value to the son, and the prodigal goes off, and, uh, you know, he spends it up in riotous living in a, in a distant land. Of course, uh, economy plummets in that distant land, and um, the son finds himself at a loss for food, ends up working uh, feeding pigs, etc., and in that situation, he comes to his senses and says, "I'll go back to my father and and be a servant." Okay?
Okay, so he goes back to the father, and you know the story. The father is watching down the road, and while he's still far off, the father runs to, to greet the son. He embraces the son. The son gives his little canned speech that he's been preparing the whole time back, you know, exactly what he's going to say. I'm not worthy. Please just let me be a servant, etc. Father isn't having any of it. Restores him to sonship. They have a big feast, a todah, you know. A Thanksgiving sacrifice, perhaps, and uh, and so the son is restored. Okay, but but observe what happened there. It was the restoration of family relationship. The son came back and he was restored as son. Now again, in our culture, you know, if we told a parable about mercy, the modern American might want to say, "Oh yeah, so the son came back and the father said, oh, you're back. Here's some more cash.'" You know. Go on off and have another good time. Oh, thanks, pops. You know, goes off for more riotous living. I mean, that's what American culture wants. Okay, more cash. That's mercy. That was mercy. You know, no, that's not mercy. Okay, giving folks cash so that they can go off and be separate, something like that. That's not mercy. God's mercy draws us to Him. God's mercy draws. Us both to him and to each other, and it restores family bonds. So how do we live out this year of mercy? The year of mercy ought to be all about strengthening marriage, because marriage is a covenant, strengthening marriage bonds, strengthening family bonds. It ought to be about evangelization, because evangelization is inviting people into the family, and mercy is you know, inviting people into the covenant you know, is what evangelization is all about. And mercy is all about that covenant bond, that familial bond. And confession, and this is why Pope Francis has placed reconciliation or the sacrament of confession at the center of the year of mercy and earnestly urged us all to make use of it uh, frequently and uh, called on dioceses to practice things like 24-hour uh, confession and in all the churches and many dioceses have done things like that. So confession, which reconciles children back into the family, because God's mercy is all about restoring familial bonds. You know, I'm just going to close with with a little um, story about how this has been pertinent in my own life. Um, some years ago, uh, I read the Pope's uh, exhortation, um, uh, "The Joy of the Gospel." on evangelization. And I was really touched to the heart reading that. Um, One of the things the Pope said in there is that he wanted us all as Catholics to get out of our comfort zone, to go out and share the gospel. And then I thought to myself as I was reading that, I'm like, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to me because uh, I'm a professional academic and, you know, I'm teaching people about God's word all the time, you know, and so that's, that's what I'm contributing to the evangelization. And then a couple lines later, the Pope said, and I know that professionals and academics (laughs) will not want to get out of their comfort zone. (laughs) And I call on those people especially. I'm like, oh, man, you know, he nailed me. So it's like, I I need to get out of my comfort zone. So one of of my former students is involved in St. Paul Street Evangelization. He's one of the national coordinators uh, for that apostolate. I'm very proud of him. He's done a great job. And this is, if you've not heard of St. Paul Street Evangelization, it's a Catholic apostolate that that, uh, operates by going to uh, street corners or going to farmers markets or other places where people are milling around and there's a lot of foot traffic and they set up a table and pass out rosaries and holy cards and uh, miraculous medals and just try to strike up conversations with people and share the Catholic faith and many many people have been converted through these conversations and uh, it's really um, uh, renewed the life of, of parishes and sometimes whole dioceses and um, it's been really exciting. So I saw him doing that, and that really appealed to me because I cut my teeth doing um, door-to-door evangelism as a Protestant pastor back in the day, and I uh, still got that bug in my blood. And I uh, thought, this is, this is a great way to do it. Um, when I was a Protestant pastor, it was easy. I would just knock on people's doors and say, Hi, I'm, I'm Pastor John uh, from the local church down there. And uh, what's your name? You know, I just get to know them. 
Well, the hi, I'm Pastor John thing didn't work anymore after I became Catholic. So, <laughs> like, I, I have to have a different MO. So this, the pat, you know, the saying, hi, I'm John, would you like a free rosary? That was my new, my new way into it. And uh, so we started doing that. So done this many, many times. We've gone out with students. We've gone into Pittsburgh. We've done this in, Pitts, in uh, Steubenville. Uh, the last weekend, this past weekend, there was uh, uh, a Steubenville Home Fest, a city festival. And um, I was really tired, didn't want to go out, but I just I heard God's voice saying, just, just go, be faithful and trust. You know, get out, your, get out of your comfort zone. See, I like to be behind something big. You know, I like it when people call me doctor you know, or professor. You know. Being out there on a street corner, unprotected, and nobody knows who I am, you know. But anyway, it was good. So we went out and uh, had some friends from church put up uh, some tables, set out some rosaries. One of the first people that came by was a, was a, uh, a young mom with a couple kids. Said, hey, would you like a free rosary? She came. Um, uh, the kids took rosaries. We talked, you know, had some pleasantries and stuff, and then, and then they moved off. And then other people came by, and we had a lot of what I like to call divine appointments on that day. And uh, that, was, that was really nice. But I wanna, the one that I want to share with you is, toward the end of the day, that mom came back. And she approached us, and she was looking at what she was doing, and she came up and started talking to us. And she said, you know, I was here earlier and, and got some rosies for my kids, and I couldn't stick around because the four-year-old was running off and so on. But I'm coming back, and you got the sign there that says, you know, do you need prayer? And I just wanted to let you guys know, I, I came into the Catholic Church six years ago. Um, but since then, it's been so hard for me to just get myself motivated to get up and get to Mass every Sunday morning. So would you pray for me that I would have the strength to get back to Mass? And we said, absolutely, we'll pray. Do you mind praying right now? She said, no. So we, the, the three of us... Stood there, we lifted up our hearts to God, and we prayed right there that she had the grace. And after the prayer, she smiled, and we said, uh, nice to meet you, and so on. And she went off, and uh, I got to trust those prayers were answered. But that is God's mercy at work. You see, when she went down to the Steubenville Festival that morning, that was probably the last place she was expecting to see any kind of reminder of the Catholic faith, Okay. But God had other plans and was moving on the heart of a buddy of mine and me and some others. And uh, we came and we were there and we tried to be faithful to him. And there she comes and there's a reminder of God's mercy, of God's family, of God's covenant that she had entered. And she was able to take advantage of that and her heart was open. And she was open, because our hearts have to be open to receive God's mercy. And having an open heart, she came, we were able to pray, and God's mercy is active, and i got to trust that our prayers will be answered, and he will give her the grace that she needs to come back. But that is the mercy of God. What is the mercy of God? It says covenant faithfulness. And what are we supposed to do this year of mercy? Strengthen those bonds in our own family and in the family which is the church. Call people back. That's what we're to do. Let's pray now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just give thanks to you because your mercy endures forever. You are always faithful to your covenant. Lord, be faithful to your covenant to us. We know that you are. In this year of mercy, help us to experience your divine mercy. And, and to know and be confident that through the sacraments, all the wrong that we have done, all the covenant breaking that we have done, has been wiped away. Also, Lord, give us the courage to get out of our comfort zones and to go and to invite those who have yet to taste what, it's, what it means to be part of the family of God. Help us to invite them in or to invite them back. And may their hearts be open. May you be preparing for us even now divine appointments for each one of us to invite back family members, friends, or persons that we've never even met but just have a chance encounter with to taste the fullness of being in your family. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This concludes 
the Gospel of Divine Mercy Conference, Talk 2. Mercy in Psalms, presented by Dr. John Bergsman, Fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. To learn more about the work of the St. Paul Center and to access its extensive archive of resources on Scripture, the sacraments, sacred liturgies, and much more, visit their website, stpaulcenter.com. Discerning Hearts would like to thank Dr. Scott Hahn and all those associated with the St. Paul Center for the opportunity to bring you this presentation. Discerning Hearts is a nonprofit Catholic media apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation. To hear and or to download freely hundreds of other programs dedicated to spiritual formation, visit discerninghearts.com. We pray this has been helpful for you and that you will tell a friend and visit discerninghearts.com. Discerning Hearts